At the moment, we're uh, in the middle of uh, Scottish summer, which is kind of wind and rain, and uh, you know, occasionally the sun will come out, so that's good. But at least it's warm rain, so uh, look on the bright side. And uh, well, the rest of Europe sweats, but uh, that's okay as well. And uh, so uh, during that period, obviously the life of the church continues. We don't pack up for the summer. Uh, but, and we, we have various things that you can connect into. Can I mention that we have a Tuesday evening prayer meeting at 7.30? And uh, just again, if you want to have some fellowship with some of the Christians uh, in the church, then come along to that at 7.30 on a Tuesday. We also have a brilliant 9.30 prayer meeting. I, I, I'd really encourage, we've got a good core now that come most weeks, but I'd really encourage you, if you've never come along to the 9.30, to, to try it occasionally even. And, uh, you know, come along once in a while because it's really great. And, and I'm sure those that go on a regular basis will tell you so. Uh, it's, it's just good to spend time even before we come to worship, just praying together and, and doing that. Uh, the, the other thing I, I want to mention is uh, we, we're sort of starting to think about the autumn. Obviously, I know we're all in summer mode at the moment, but we are thinking about the autumn. And uh, what, one of the, the things that we, we've managed to sort of get scheduled into our diary for the autumn is uh, we've been talking with a guy called Alan McKinley. And some of you will know Alan McKinley from Clan. Uh, he, he was the principal worship leader of CLAM, which used to be a Christian conference that actually ran about this time every year uh, until it didn't. And, uh, and he's been over in California for the last three or four years. And uh, he's, he's come back to Scotland and he's developing an itinerant ministry. And uh, anyway, the, the long and the short of it is, is we're, we're going to be launching a, a, a worship evening uh, once a month uh, in the in the autumn called Wildfire, SBC Wildfire, which is just going to be a forum for people to come together to worship God, to, to, to pray, to hear from God, and, and see what happens. And, uh, and so we're going to be running that once a month. So we're really excited about that. We're, we're excited that uh, this is going to be the, the maybe a prototype for what will run through Scotland, but certainly Alan feels that Stirling is such a significant place as a centre. And we hope that this will be more than just for SBC, that it will be broader and, and uh, we'll see God work. So that's something to look forward to as we move towards the autumn. Anyway, let's turn to, to Nehemiah. Um, we're going to look at uh, the fourth in our series. Uh, looking at Nehemiah's courage. And, and you'll know if you've been here the last few weeks, Nehemiah was part of the, the Persian civil service, very high up ranking official. And uh, he decided to give up his day job and go and govern this little province, uh, Judea. And, and he did it because he wanted to see the restoration of Jerusalem. And, and so he had a sense of mission and purpose, and he went to see the restoration of the city. And, and the book of Nehemiah is really about the restoration of these walls, uh, these walls that, that express God's protection and his uh, presence and his promise, and, and a desire to see these things restored. Because without walls, you couldn't really have an ancient city. And, and the walls created the environment for growth, for life, for, for new things to happen. And so Nehemiah wanted to set out to create a space where God could do new things, where there could come this renewing. 
And, and the story of Nehemiah is us seeing him do this. And it's, um, if we can go back to the other slide, sorry. Um, and uh, just to give you a little visual, visual representation of ancient Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of people go to Jerusalem today and you walk around the old city. And uh, it's fairly flat and it's like a traditional uh, Middle Eastern kind of market. And you walk around and your guides will tell you this is where Jesus sat and this is where Jesus lay his hands against this wall or whatever. Problem was, it was only built 200 years after Jesus. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, actually that was nothing to do with the Jerusalem that Jesus knew or the Jerusalem that Nehemiah knew. And uh, you need to go down a hill. It's called the city of David today. And uh, the, the, the city that Jesus knew was actually on a hill. And it had banked housing. So uh, you can still see it. If, I don't know if you can see the picture on the left. But it had banked housing. And, and if you want a visible representation of what it looked like, it actually looked like sterling. I haven't done the exact dimensions, but we're probably not far off it. But from Marks and Spencer's to the castle is exactly what ancient Jerusalem looked like. It was a, a hill with the temple and the king's palace at the top and then running down the hill. And it had a wall. And you'll know that Stirling has the, the, the most ancient medieval walls or the most complete medieval walls of any Scottish city. Uh, and uh, Although actually most people don't know we only had half. Uh, they, they actually didn't go right around the whole town. This side of the, the city was actually without walls because it was all marshy, so you couldn't cross an army, so they used the marshes to protect. But on the other side, you can still see them today. There was walls. And, and uh, Nehemiah came to something that looked very similar geographically, a hill and a destroyed temple, a destroyed uh, palace, uh, a destroyed city with all the walls smashed in. And he begins to restore them. And, and so we see, can we go to the next slide? That's great. And, and so we start to see this process of restoration that Nehemiah begins. And, and, and as he does it, they describe themselves as the builders, as the ones who have come to bring restoration. So let's go to the next slide. And uh, verse 5 talks of them as the builders. And I don't know if you've ever played with young children, but there's a perverse thing that young children are into, which is if you get building blocks or anything, and, and like you build it up, and then it gets so high, and then they turn around and smash it down. You, you ever find that? And then you build it up, and then they smash it down. And then you get a turn, and they build it up, and you smash it down because... He's brought out the child in you. But you know that sort of experience. And, uh, and in chapter 4 in Nehemiah, this is the sort of experience that we're seeing. That, that Nehemiah is trying to build something up, and there are always forces that want to tear it down. The, 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 uh, we, we do not build in a vacuum-free environment. Either there is always a, a friction that you have to work against. That, that's, that's why building is hard. You know, it's a tough thing to do. And, and, and here in Nehemiah chapter 4, we, we discover 
as Nehemiah is trying to build, there are people trying to tear down what is trying to be built. And, and it's so easy to get discouraged in that context, isn't it? Because you kind of build something and then it falls apart. And, uh, and, and, and this goes across life. You know, it might be your family. You try and build your, your family and then something goes wrong with it. Or, or you, you try and build a business and something goes wrong with it. Or, or you, you try and build a particular kind of life and something goes wrong with it. And, and, and you tend to get, find this kind of discouragement and the attitude being what the point. I was actually terrified yesterday in a conversation I had um, with a, a young family and I, I was talking to the, the, the husband and, uh, and, and I was talking about the future and he turned around and he said to me, what future? You know, and I suddenly thought, yeah, that's the outlook, isn't it? What future? Do you know, I mean, apart from how desperate it is to try and find a house and to then pay, make payments on that house, how desperate it is now to just try and live in this world and, and kind of get by uh, in terms of the services that surround us. But, but you're also sitting with these big issues like eco, ecological crises. You're sitting even with the threat of nuclear war again, which is now kind of looming, sitting. I noticed Hollywood's producing movies to help reinforce these fears. And, and, and this whole sense now of what's the point? What's the point? You know, people in work, I feel desperately like that. Talk to anybody in the professions. You know, people in teaching, at schools, in medicine, in law enforcement, in, in, in government. You know, there's a desperate sense of what's the point? You know, we're trying to build something and it keeps getting knocked down. It keeps getting worked out. And there's a malaise, like I don't think I've seen in my lifetime, which is just discouragement and people feeling, what's the point? Maybe you're here this morning feeling a little bit like that. And, and, and you kind of say, God, why, why have you made it hard to build, especially in terms of, of church and Christianity? Why is it so hard? Why does it seem to be that when we see things built up, they, they tend to get torn down? And, and why is it that we have, there, there is a perverse delight. Maybe we've even seen this in the media this week in, in terms of some of the things that we've seen going on with news presenters. There's a delight perverse in tearing things down. There's just something in us that delights in it. And, and, and we have this propensity towards it. And, and why is it that it is so difficult? And why is it we have this propensity? And, and as I was thinking about this, I, I, I kind of realized that it's because God wants us to become Christ-like. You know, he's calling us to be Christ-like. And, 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 and God's purpose for his people is to shape us and make us Christ-like. God's work in his people is to make us Christ-like. And God's promise for his people is to be Christ-like. And, and so it's like when we are facing these things, they become a test of character. And they become shaping. And, and we either just say, you know, what's the point? 
and we just we become one of the ones that knocks it down because it's much easier to knock down than try and build up. And we become one of those people. And you know what? It's sometimes fun. It feels releasing and, until you kind of look at it and think, oh dear, how did we get here? And, and it feels easier. Or actually, we turn around and we say, you know what? We have to respond to this in a way that is about shaping who we are. And as God shapes who we are, he begins to shape who our society is. And I actually believe that we face one of the biggest challenges probably in my life in terms of our wider society, not just church, but wider society about what are we going to do. And, and I know we're tired. I know it's, it's been rough. I know people are challenged. But, but what are we going to do? And, and, you know, if you're in healthcare, if you're in teaching, if you're in business, the question is, how are you going to rise to these challenges? How are we going to do it? What's that going to be? And see, when we come back in the autumn, we're going to spend an awful lot of time thinking about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be in service. And, and so this is a kind of prelude because we are called to be Christ-like. First of all, we're called to be Christ-like in work. Now, work is hard. We haven't got time to do all the theology of it, but Genesis 3 explains why it's hard. But it's hard. I, uh, I've been doing a little bit of gardening. It's become really desperately necessary. And it's like, you know, all these dandelions that I ripped up. Well, I'm sure I ripped them up last year. They've all come back and they've brought their families. <laughs> and it's like, what's going on here? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it was only a few weeks ago that I cleared them, and they're back. <laughs> and and suddenly, and you 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 you're just trying to restore it and get it back, and 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 it's like, and then it's constant. It's like this. It's hard here, and work is hard. To rebuild Jerusalem was an incredibly challenging thing. You had one of the most gifted. Uh, leaders probably in the Persian Empire taking it on, and it was going to be tough. It was worse because we see the critics surrounding Nehemiah and his project, and they were questioning. There's, there's uh, verse 3 and 4 of the passage. What you have to envisage is army commanders sitting, you know, drinking beer and laughing at the project that they're trying to do down in Jerusalem, sitting in the north laughing at it. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, it eventually has one of the Amorites saying, a fox will knock them down. And you can imagine them all laughing. But they were mocking the ability, the motivation, and the materials that the people of God had to do the job. They were mocking Nehemiah. He's deluded. They're never going to rebuild Jerusalem. And, and that was the environment, because, and, and the work was going to be tough. And what does it say? It says they gave their heart to the work, and they rebuilt. They rebuilt. And um, I, I, I think that's the only response that you can have. Now, it's, again, not easy. But it's a response which says, I'm not going to let discouragement. I'm not going to let disappointment. I'm not going to let the, the, the forces that want to pull down to triumph here. 
I'm going to give my heart to work. And although it's tough working and it's hard and it's a grind, I'm going to work and I'm going to give my heart to do that. You know, I, I, I think unless we adopt this kind of mentality, we're doomed. And I don't mean as church. I mean, I'm talking Scotland. I can see people thinking of Dad's army. We're doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I, I, I don't think. But, but if we say we will build and we put our hearts to it, there's hope. Yeah, there's hope. And, and if you read on in verse 5, you'll see that it says they rebuilt the walls. Now, unfortunately, it's not the Hollywood ending. Okay? Because it's like they rebuilt the walls. And, and we're now thinking, brilliant, they've got brand new walls, they're great. If you actually read it, it says they half built the walls. They got half walls. And uh, so, so they hadn't really achieved it. And I'm sure people were still mocking and saying, hey, is that the best you can do? But they got half walls. They, and, and sometimes when we're faced things and we're faced things with discouragement, we have to just do what we can do. And claim the small victories when we get them. You know, and maybe it's in your family that you've got to see change. But, you know, maybe it's get your family to sit around the meal table. And you're like, that's not a functioning family yet. But hey, it's a game. It's a game. And an and, and attitude in relation to work that says we're going to work until we see those small gains. And we're going to triumph in relation to the small gains. And as we do that, it shapes a Christ-likeness in us. So let's go to the next slide. You know, we, we are, as Christians, are called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and serve others and seek justice. And, you know, we will find as we try and serve God in this world that there will be lies, there will be insults, there will be doubts and fears and threats. And, and, you know, we will, we will suffer this stuff, and you will find this stuff. But again, the question is, what are we going to allow to triumph? Do we allow the distractors and detractors, or do we allow God and the gospel to win? And, and this is critical for us right now as a society. This is the question that every single one of us has to ask. And, and it's particularly hard. You see, if you have the ability to opt out, you know, it's particularly hard for you at the moment. Because why stay if you can opt out? Why stay if you can go and lie in the sun, even if it is 45 degrees? Maybe this is God's way of saying, don't opt out and lie in the sun. <laughs> stay in Scotland and have it rain on you. And, but, you know, why? Because it becomes way too easy. Yeah, I can do it. I don't have to do this. Too much hard work. Let's go to the next slide. We see that they become Christ-like in their vigilance. You see, suddenly they're told as, as they build their half walls, then it looks and, and it gets increasingly daunting. Actually, as the story goes on, you, you see that the threat increases. Initially, it's just the northern armies and folks laughing at them. But suddenly we see the southern armies, the Arabs and the, the Philistines or, or, or those, the, the successors to the Philistines laughing at them and now being a threat to them. And, and, and uh, suddenly they become aware and they start to anticipate what's going on. And, and 
we, we, um, and the, the, there's a threat. The, the, the whole thing of this threat is to bring the work to a halt. And, and Nehemiah understands that if the work is not to be brought to a halt, you have to get vigilant. You have to get informed and prepare to counter. Now, if, if, if we're going to address what's happening in our families, in our society, in our churches, if we're going to, we have to get informed. We have to start to understand what the threats are, what the dangers are. What, one of the things, and I, I, I do feel like an old man sometimes when I sit down with my friends and we chat, but, you know, it's like I sit and look at where we are today, and I'm like, what's happened to the world? Has the world gone mad? I mean, it just, it just seems to have lost its place in so many ways. And, and we sit and we go and we, we kind of say, we were caught sleeping at the wheel. We never saw this. I had a friend uh, who, who came around and, and he was telling me about his, his, his granddaughter. And uh, 11-year-old granddaughter who was in a sex ed class in a school where they were teaching them about polyamory. That's why you should have multiple lovers. Okay. In a school, government-approved syllabus. And if you suggest that maybe this is unacceptable or unhealthy or actually might even be harming, you're branded right wing because you believe in the family and the importance of the family. That's the society that we now live in. And you sit there and you go, how did we get here? You know, and as Christians, we have to own up and say we were not vigilant. We actually didn't see what was coming, and we've ended up in a place where I think our society is severely damaged. I, I, again, I was seeing another stat, not from a, not from a Christian, actually, from just a, a commentator, but he was saying in the 1950s, 13% of children when they reach 16 or 17 would have experienced breakup within their family and would have gone through the pain of, of seeing their parents separate and divorce and, and all the, the ramifications of that. They said if you are born in the 1990s, that figure, and I mean 13% was quite high. Well, that's quite a lot. That's more than one in 10. He said if you were born in the 1990s, that will now be 53% in terms of our society. You know, young people don't want to marry now. And you know why they don't want to marry? Because, uh, again, survey comes out, why don't you want to marry? Because we're scared we might divorce. We're scared of the brokenness. We're scared of the mess. And the thing is, we are creating a society that is severely broken. We are finding mental health issues with our children. And, and not only with our children, but our adults which are unprecedented. I mean, the stuff, if, and again, we have people who work in our church in these areas. You just have to talk to them about the issues that are going on. And, and you know, one is not unrelated to the other. And we're told that if we actually have concern about this and actually want to say the family is the essential building block of our society, that stable relationships are fundamental to the health of our world, you're now right wing and you're an extremist what happened 
what happens. How do we get vigilant as Christians? Well, when we start to get informed, and, and we see what Nehemiah does is he starts to pray. And as Christians, we need to start to pray. And I don't know if you do this, but I would encourage you to do this. Is that you get, buy yourself papers and start praying through the papers. You know, just start taking the stories and start praying about them. And there are things daily in our newspapers in our media that you will see that we should be vigilant about and we should be praying about and saying, God, turn the tide, because it's going to take something supernatural to start to see the tides turn. But it can turn. And Nehemiah understood that. But also, and I, and I believe we have to get active. As Christians, we should not be cowered into a, a, a situation where we are silenced. And uh, the, there's a situation, and again... Wherever you stand on LGBTQ, uh, that's fair enough, and that's not what the sermon's about, but there's a guy I know who runs uh, the filling station up in the Northeast. Again, I think it might be running this year. Uh, Richard Frolingill. And he walked into his local Yorkshire Building Society in Carlisle, and it was wall-to-wall LGBT uh, plus affirmation stuff. He filled in a feedback form that he was asked to fill in, and he said, look, I, I really don't think banks should be about banking and not uh, social engineering, basically. And uh, he, he wrote a letter, and they shut his bank accounts. Now, 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 in our society, that should worry us. If wherever we stand on these issues, that should worry us. Because what's happening is we're being carved into silence on issues. And as churches, we need to get vigilant. We need to be like Jeremiah. We need to be prepared, understanding what's going on. We need to be praying about it diligently. But also, we need to not be silenced when this stuff happens. We have to speak out. And forgive me if you think that's extreme. Thirdly, we need to be Christ-like in our courage. You know, Jeremiah, and, and to do what Jeremiah did, was to take courage. And, and I, I think courage is all about where your focus lies. Jeremiah's situation was steadily getting worse as chapter 4 goes on. As I said, he just had a few northern armies to worry about initially, but suddenly everybody's surrounding you. You've got your Arabs. You've got the, 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 the Philistines. You've got all the people around you suddenly. And it's not looking good. And, and if you continue to work, because that's what they're doing. They're trying to intimidate Nehemiah to stop the building. If you continue to work, Nehemiah, we're going to attack. That's what they're saying to him. And, and Nehemiah to turn around and, uh, and again, as a leader, he's about to take people into a, a place of jeopardy. Is about to take them into a place of conflict. And to do that, he needs to be brave. He needs to have a courage. And how's he going to do that? And, and, and courage is about where we set our focus. You know, if we set our focus on the threats, it will get terrifying. Uh, I uh, went to see the dentist this week. And uh, sort of, uh, they, they gave me the bad news I'm going to have to have root canals. And... Uh, so I'm not looking, because I'm told it's not great, right? And uh, so I'm not really looking forward to that. And I'm not really sure the dentist has inspired much confidence in me. 
and, uh, and, and, and so suddenly I have a threat. Now, I can spend the next few weeks focusing on what's going to happen to me and all that can go wrong <laughs> and, and then not go <laughs> because I have no courage. Or I can say, mm, it's going to be tough, but you know what? I'll face it. But probably because the outcome's not a good one if I don't. But it's our focus. And as Christians, the only way we'll have courage is if we put our focus on God. The only way we're going to have courage in the situation that we have is if we put our focus on God and his work and the hope that God will work. And, and I really do think that we need to do, see God supernaturally move in our society in a way. And, and I, I, I think, and again, uh, I mean, people talk about this, but I think we are not far away from a turning point. And, and I really pray that, that we will be a people who are ready and able to see and be part of that turning point. In order to have courage, it also requires solidarity. Uh, you know, it's, it's scary to do things. But if you've got pals, it helps. I have a friend, he's six foot four. He's quite big, quite menacing. And I like traveling with him. And, and the reason I like traveling with him is because he's big. And I feel safer when he's with me. It increases my courage. And, uh, and, and it's the same as the church. If we hold together and we encourage one another, and we don't discourage one another, then we actually have the courage to challenge. If we are isolated, then we get picked off so easy. But verse 20 tells us something else. It then says, Nehemiah finishes all of this, and he says, you know what? God's going to fight for you. God will actually do it. And, and, and so there comes a, a courage which actually recognizes that, well, yeah, we need to be vigilant. We need to be prepared. We need to take action in places that actually this is God's fight. And the good news is if it's you plus God, you're going to win. And uh, because no matter what you face, God is bigger than it. And understanding that God will win and win out creates in us a particular courage. You see, Christ-likeness is about our response to God's grace. It's, it's grace in Christ who died for us and rose for us, who lives with us, who intercedes for us, who empowers us, who guides us, who transforms us and will come again for us. And Christians, as we face the moments and as we face, I think, historical moments, as we face a, a sense amongst young people that there is no future and, and it's about us turning it. And it's interesting why Nehemiah says, why should you turn this? And Nehemiah says, come and stand and rebuild the walls, not for you, but for your family, for your children, for the future. And why should we have courage? Why should we be vigilant? Why should we work? Not necessarily for us, but for the future. For the future of Scotland, for the future of the UK, for the future of the church. For the future of our communities and our society. God will fight for us. But we're called to be part of creating that future. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you for the challenge of Nehemiah. 
And, and God, we recognize the, the, the forces that are arrayed against us in so many areas of our life. Lord, those forces that tear down rather than build up, those forces that would, would want to halt the work of God in the world in whatever way they can and halt that work in our life. Lord, I pray that you would help us become Christ-like in the way that we respond to these challenges. Lord, help us to be a a Christ-like people in the courage that we display. Lord, help us to be Christ-like in our vigilance and our perception and understanding of these things as we cry out to you to work. And Lord, help us to be Christ-like in our work that we don't walk away discouraged and despondent, but we recognize that you fight on our side and that you are a God who will come through if we are obedient and faithful. So Lord, help us to be an obedient and faithful people in the midst of the age that we live in. I ask this in your name. Amen.